Here's everything you might have missed in She-Hulk Episode 3. Welcome back, you Marvel maniacs, to our weekly breakdown of She-Hulk. The third episode came with kooky court cases, surprise cameos, and plenty of Easter eggs. We're going to break it all down for you in just a moment, but to do so, we have to spoil what happens in the latest She-Hulk. So if you haven't seen it yet and you're worried about that sort of thing, find the nearest sling ring portal on out of here. You've just admitted to facilitating a prisoner escape, which is a crime. I must depart. Okay, let's get into it, shall we? Last week, we saw Jennifer Walters get over her conflict of interest and meet with Emil Blonsky, the man who tried to kill her cousin Bruce. Semantics, he was the Hulk. Formerly known as Abomination, he was the villain of 2008's Incredible Hulk, and he's being held at a supermax prison run by the Department of Damage Control. They've moved from a Jatari Tech cleanup crew in Spider-Man Homecoming to a federal agency of super cops. When Jen visits Blonsky in prison to take him to task, you can see A113 in the background. This is a recurring Easter egg found most famously in Pixar films. It's a reference to Room A113 at the California Institute of the Arts, where many artists and filmmakers studied their craft. And it really says something if they equate that room with a literal prison. Anyway, Blonsky said his Abomination days are behind him, but footage leaked of him fighting as Abomination in the Golden Daggers Club arena from Shang-Chi. He says that he was forced to leave his cell by Earth's reigning Sorcerer Supreme, Wong. Wong, just... Wong. However, Sorcerer Supreme isn't the only job that Wong has held over the years. According to his LinkedIn page, Wong's time before Kamertage was spent as a Target sales associate as well. Or a librarian who lives in Nepal. We also get more fourth wall breaking fun with Jen acknowledging the cavalcade of MCU cameos thus far. And given the fact that we're also getting Daredevil later in the season and maybe some other surprises, I think it's safe to say we'll be a-okay on the cameo front. Just remember whose show this actually is. Now, during the news reports following the title, we see a Chiron at the bottom talking about Titania's legal troubles. The character first appeared in Marvel Superhero Secret Wars number three. On the show, we saw her in the first episode fleeing from traffic court when Jen was forced to publicly Hulk out. Although she hasn't popped up since, Titania is a frequent thorn in She-Hulk's side in the comics, so expect more of her as the season continues. Now, another news report, the conversation with Jefferson Coop, introduces Gideon Wilson as the prosecutor that put Abomination in prison. In the comics, Gideon Wilson is Sam Wilson's brother. First introduced in 2007's World War Hulk Gamma Corps No. 1, he was exposed to gamma radiation in an attempt to give him powers. And he went on to fight the Hulk, who he blamed for his son's death. Next, we get a series of videos satirizing those desperate MCU dorks who breathlessly slam their keyboards and fill their diapers every time a new She-Hulk promo would drop. Now, as the folks at She-Hulk Updates on Twitter pointed out, some of these comments seem to be directly adapted from Marvel's announcement post on Instagram. So congrats to those who commented, you're canonically a dipsh** in two universes now. Good luck. Back at GLKNH, we meet another member of the Superhuman Law Division who's also straight out of the comics, Mallory Book. First introduced in 2004's She-Hulk number one, Mallory is a lot like Daredevil. She's a really good lawyer. How did you just do that? I'm a really good lawyer. But unlike Daredevil, she's also one of Jen's biggest professional rivals, which we'll likely see unfold over the course of this show. For now, neither Jen nor Mallory want to take Bukowski's case, because much like in the comics, he is a total wiener and has an antagonistic relationship with Jen to boot. Now, despite his ardent belief that Megan the Stallion would deign to date him, a guy who parks his Cybertruck in handicapped parking spots, he's been defrauded by a shape-shifting light elf from New Asgard. 
First appearing in 1987's Alpha Flight number 50, light elves dwell in Alfheim, one of the nine realms of Norse mythology. And while they aren't inherently shape-shifting tricksters like we see on this show, it does feel in keeping with the general vibe of Thor's mythos in the MCU. Now, this specific light elf is named Runa, which is interesting because the only existing Runa in Marvel lore that we know about is the Earth-616 equivalent of the MCU's Valkyrie, introduced in 2021's King in Black, Return of the Valkyries number one. Wong then finally arrives at the GLKNH offices and spins a yarn about needing a worthy opponent as part of his training to be Sorcerer Supreme. Now, if you ask me, this was really so he could underwrite the repairs to the Sanctum Sanctorum after Bruce Banner crash-landed through the roof in Avengers Infinity War. And then there was also all that snow removal in Spider-Man No Way Home, or maybe he just wanted to finance the purchase of his favorite ice cream. A hunk of Hulk burning fudge is our favorite. That's a thing. And speaking of No Way Home, Wong mentioned the runes of cough call spell they cast to erase everyone's collective memories of Peter Parker. And it's highly unethical. Yeah, it's also very messy, believe me. While he doesn't talk about the multiverse per se, he does mention the mirror dimension from the first Doctor Strange, which is used as a training ground for sorcerers. And he also mentions the shadow dimension. This could either reference the shadow realm, which we recently saw in Thor Love and Thunder, or the dark dimension where Dormammu dwells, which we saw in the OG Doctor Strange. Moving on, when we see a U-Screen video, the MCU's apparent alternate to YouTube, there's a QR code leading to a free comic. This week, it's 1980's Savage She-Hulk number two, which includes the first appearance of Dennis Bukowski. He's still a dick. The video itself is footage of Runa pretending to be Megan the Stallion. On the sidebar, though, is a review of the Iron Man 3's, those Jordan-inspired sneakers we saw teased last week on another Easter egg-filled website. And contrary to the theories that Blonsky's seven pen pals were the other members of the Thunderbolts, they are in fact a group of women who have all fallen in love with the poetry writing prisoner. And contrary to Lou Bega's Mambo number no. five, Blonsky did not need a little bit of Monica in his life. Rather, he opted for Blair, Ruth, Marta, Sheila, Alejandra, Yvonne, and Nicolette. Love you. One of the witnesses called during the parole hearing is named Amy Chance, and she is actually a production supervisor at Marvel Studios working on shows like She-Hulk. When Wong finally arrives, he mentions a kumite, and that is a real term used in karate, referring to a form of sparring, but more famously, it was the name of the big tournament in 1988's Bloodsport, which is more of a one-to-one -one with what we saw in Shang-Chi. During the Bukowski v. Runa trial, the mischievous light elf tries to claim diplomatic immunity and then quotes Odin and Thor's inspirational Asgard is not a place, it's a people line from Thor Ragnarok. We also get another fun cameo from Megan the Stallion, which becomes a running gag throughout the episode. Ah. During his parole hearing, Blonsky then morphs into Abomination to show the board that he's perfectly in control and... He isn't lying. This likely doesn't do him any favors with the parole board, but it certainly could put him on the radar of people like Contessa Valentina Allegra de Fontaine, who's seemingly recruiting a group that will become the Thunderbolts. <laughs> As part of his parole, Blonsky has to wear an inhibitor device in perpetuity that will prevent him from turning into Abomination. And while we saw Bruce Banner wear a similar device in the first episode designed to keep him in human form, this line also evokes images of the inhibitor collars that mutants were made to wear in the X-Men comics. 
Introduced in 1980's seminal X-Men number 141, Chris Claremont and John Byrne created inhibitor collars. These devices neutralized a mutant's superhuman abilities, and they were part of a slippery slope beginning with the Mutant Control Act that led to the apocalyptic events of Days of Future Past. Now, this isn't to say we're going to see that happen here, but Damage Control is certainly exhibiting very similar behavior in the MCU, with their increasingly aggressive measures to control enhanced individuals. Later, outside the prison, one of the reporters asks Jen if there's any truth that she got her powers from a mafia hit gone wrong, and this is a reference to her actual comic book origins. In 1980's Savage She-Hulk number 1, Jen is mortally wounded by mobsters who had a bone to pick with her client. She wound up getting a blood transfusion from Bruce, which saved her life, but gave her Hulk powers in turn. Moving on, Jen helps Dennis win his case by swearing under oath that he's a giant adult baby, but then this giant adult baby says something that resonates with her. He wants to take away Runa's powers, which is something that Jen wants to do with her own She-Hulk abilities. Oh, did Dennis Bukowski just give me an idea? That will stay between us. With the episode's focus on inhibitor collars and depowering, this is absolutely going to be a through line for the rest of the show. Now, towards the end of the episode, Jen gets attacked in an alleyway by a group that comic fans will recognize as the Wrecking Crew. Created by Len Wein and Sal Buscema, these construction crew-themed villains first appeared in 1974's Defenders No. 17. Led by the aptly named Wrecker, the group also included Bulldozer, Pile Driver, and Thunderball. They gained superpowers when Wrecker's Enchanted Crowbar, yes, Enchanted Crowbar, was struck by lightning, imbuing the others with powerful magical abilities as well. As for that joke about robbing an Asgardian construction worker, their powers are Asgardian in origin in the comics, so it's technically correct, the best kind of correct. Or maybe it's a deep-cut reference to Sigurd Jarlson, Thor's construction worker alter ego from the comics, but probably not. They've been hired by someone to steal She-Hulk's blood, and presumably this is to replicate the same process that gave her Hulk powers in the first place. Given General Thunderbolt Ross's obsession with Hulk and the government's repeated failed attempts to recreate the Super Soldier Serum, this could be connected to the Thunderbolts program as well. And given the shots of these needles in a high-tech lab from the trailers, this is absolutely going to be a major plot line throughout the season. It could also lead us to the introduction of another gamma-irradiated Hulk villain, Samuel Stearns, aka The Leader, and he was previously teased in 2008's Incredible Hulk as well. Once again, there's a post-credit scene this week, but much like last time, it's more of a fun tag rather than something super consequential to the plot, at least I think. We see Jennifer the Walters learning the fine art of twerking from Megan the Stallion. Anyway, folks, there you have it. That's everything we spotted in She-Hulk Episode 3. With Blonsky set to rejoin polite society and people after Jen's Hulk blood, the plot is getting thicker by the moment. And we'll have even more MCU goodness for you over on Nerdist in the days ahead, but for the meantime, tell us, what did you think of this episode? Did you spot anything that we missed? It was a picture of me with a bunch of books. Let us know in the comments below, and for the latest and greatest in the world of pop culture, make sure you stay tuned to Nerdist.com. 